It's upfront and it's candid. This is Unrestricted. This week, I talk with actor, writer, producer, comedian. You guys may know him best as the character Rabbit in the movie Super Troopers and Super Troopers 2. He's a part of the comedy troupe Broken Lizard. Uh, his name is Eric Stolhansky. He's a, a Minneapolis native. He loves it here in Minnesota. He spends his time between L.A., Minnesota, New York, wherever his comedy troupe and writing talents and acting talents take him. Uh, had a chance to sit down with him, learn a lot about just the ins and outs of Hollywood, making films, uh, what it took to get Super Troopers bought, sold, pitched, uh, written, uh, the years and the frustrations uh, that it took to get just that one movie done. And you also learn about his own physical limitations and the things that he's had to overcome personally and how it's helped him throughout life. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Super funny guy, very entertaining, very insightful, at least in the Hollywood world. I hope you like Eric Stolhansky, Unrestricted. This is brought to you by Douglas and Todd Small Batch Bourbon. It's Minnesota made and nationally recognized gold medal bourbon. Douglas and Todd has aged over five years. That's right, five years in white American oak barrels. And it's subject to the drastic temperatures of the Minnesota North Country. And all that cold and heat, well, it allows the barrels to breathe much more frequently, which gives it that smooth, award winning taste. They also believe in a regenerative system of distillation. What the hell does that mean? Well, all the wheat in the corn is grown just 30 miles from the distillery. Then the fermentation waste is used back at the farm for cattle feed. That's what that means. It's eco-minded and taste approved. It's Douglas and Todd bourbon. Please enjoy responsibly 21 plus bourbon whiskey, 46 and a half percent alcohol by volume produced and bottled by Ed Phillips and Sons Company, Princeton, Minnesota. And we are... Rolling. How are you, man? Hey, Ben. What's good. going on, dude? It's good seeing you again. It's great to see you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming in. Yeah, of course. It's uh, always fun to be in person. It's much better than uh, doing this whole social distancing Zoom thing, which is it works well, but it's uh, hard to really just kind of have a conversation. It is. I'm guessing that you've done a lot of these these type of things um, via Zoom, whether it's a podcast or just meetings and all that stuff. And they just they're clunky, you know. As yeah. much as even just two people. It just seems like it gets clunky and you, you can't pick up on the social cues of just kind of like interrupting or interjecting or just having a normal conversation. So it's nice that you're here. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, like I did a podcast to the United Kingdom last night, like UK. So you have to do a Zoom. Right. But like since we both are currently in Minneapolis, it's, oh, it's nice. You didn't want to fly to London? <laughs> <laughs> or can you even I fly? I would have liked to, yeah. but yeah, I said you can't even do it, right? <laughs> well, I think what's cool is like you're doing it and it's on Zoom and you're like, you kind of get a feeling like you're in a different country because you at least can be there via camera. Yeah. Yeah. Did they have like a cool backdrop of, of Big Ben or something? <laughs> or was it just somebody's just office In the space? Thames, like in a boat, just <laughs> riding down the Thames. Well, you're very That's... on brand right now. You've got, I am. The, you got the Vikings hat on backwards and, then, <laughs> and the Vikings shirt uh, under your you, hoodie. Buddy. Thank you. Hey, can I tell can I tell the listeners? Well, maybe you want to explain who the hell I am. People are like, who is this guy? Well, I'll do that kind of in the beginning. Okay. I'll, I'll I'll cut a whole thing in the beginning to say like, uh, here's Eric Stolhansky, actor, writer, comedian, producer. You kind of do it all. You 
you're in Hollywood, you live here in Minneapolis, and we're going to get into all that stuff. But um, I'll do all of that stuff on the front end. That <laughs> okay. way you and I can just have a conversation. But if you want to, um, I think it is fascinating. You and I have known each other for a number of years. I mean, over probably 10 years now. Um, I'd say and, 2013 years, I think. Yeah. And the reason I know that is because Barbara and I got married in 2008 and we met before I got married. Okay. And that makes sense because I think it was Mark Parrish was the was the, yeah. the the linchpin between our relationship at his foundation event and all that stuff. And so that was probably, yeah, 2007 or so because I, I got here in 2006. Yeah. So 2006. So we've known each other for a long time. And I found it fascinating when I was getting to know you that you're from here. You uh, you went to Breck School, which mm-hmm. really is just not far down the road from the studio. And um, and then you go to Colgate out in, in New York, which I've, I, I'm finding now – from all the people and friends that I have here in the Twin Cities, there's some sort of weird pipeline with Breck and Colgate. I've met, I've met quite a few people that have gone to Colgate that went to Breck. Um, and anyway, and then you go back and you were, you were at a time going back and forth between L.A. and Minneapolis. Yeah. And and so I guess we'll start there. Um, your your upbringing here in Minneapolis um, – all that stuff. You're you're a proud Scandinavian guy, and you and you are one of us. Yeah, I'm proud Minnesotan. I love to spend time here whenever I can, and I purposely try to live here, although sometimes hard and having to go to Los Angeles, like I got to go tomorrow. But uh, yeah, whenever we can be here, it's great. And COVID has really allowed us to be here quite a bit of time. Yeah, but so, even before that, I was here quite a bit. So, how much time do you spend here in LA? Uh, like, is it a clean, like, okay, I'm here for these four months, then I'm in, in Southern California for these number of weeks or months? I'd say for a long time I was coming back here 4th of July and Christmas, mm-hmm. and it's sort of the holidays to visit family. And then, um, so when we're not actually shooting a film and we're writing, I can kind of be anywhere, right? Because it's going to be like a year that you're writing a script. So it's more like, well, why don't we go back to Minneapolis, especially in the summertime when it's amazing here in the summer. You can go to the cabin and hang out and watch Twins games and... uh much rather be able to be here and in a writing environment you can write anywhere and spend time with family and community and friends you know i love wearing the vikings and t- uh, twins you know like i don't know you're in los angeles and everyone's from everywhere else right so everyone kind of comes there to be in hollywood to make tv or film but they're always from somewhere else right. so this idea i mean i think the lakers kind of have it and the kings are kind of starting to get it but it's not like everybody in the neighborhood is rooting for the same team like on a sunday everybody in minneapolis is rooting for the vikings right and if you want to roof the Vikings, you got to kind of seek out a Vikings bar. I remember UCLA used to have this uh, a Vikings bar, and you'd have to go at 10 o'clock in the morning and start drinking on a Sunday, which is not the worst thing in the world. No, but, not the worst thing. No. Yeah, but you would it'd be 10 a.m. by noon. Uh, the Vikings game's over, and now you're you're buzzed, and you're just wandering around Los Angeles. Um, <laughs> just like a lot of people <laughs> wander around Los Angeles. <laughs> but what I love here is like, you know, you, you go to the game, everyone's in purple, and afterwards people go out afterwards, there's tailgating that's going, I don't know, it's just a, it's a more fun environment to be in that with the whole the whole city where everybody loves the same team. Yeah, everybody's pulling for the for the Vikings in the same team. And I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Living in, in Southern California in San Diego, we experienced the same thing. And, and it was unfortunate being – uh, associated with the Chargers because there there is a big base of fans there, yeah. but there's also a big base of people that just ha- are from Pittsburgh and they're from Ohio and they are from Kansas City and they cheer for all the other teams. And so on a game day, it's, yeah, there's some Chargers stuff, but 
a lot of it is like where they're from. It's very, it's a very transient area. And, uh, and thus the team had to move because they just <laughs> didn't have enough fan base to support the team there, sure. which is unfortunate because it's a great city, as you know, and it's a great it's city, beautiful, uh, sports town and, and everything about it is great. It's just, everybody's from someplace else. And, uh, and so that it makes it hard for a sports fan. So I, I, I probably drove down to San Diego and watched games when you were playing with the team and I'd come watch. But what was kind of a bummer about San Diego is that stadium is so far removed from downtown. Yeah. Like, what, 40 minutes? I mean, it's, it's a hike. And well, yeah, so, it's always traffic dependent. Yeah, so traffic getting in and out. But afterwards, like, it's much more fun to go to a Padres game because you're right downtown. Yeah, that's a beautiful stadium. That's an amazing stadium. Yeah, that's, that's one amazing. of the best baseball stadiums in the country. So but I kind of were... wanted the Chargers to be, like, closer to the city. So you yeah. go out, game's done, and then you go downtown. Yeah, but the nice thing about Qualcomm is they had that huge outdoor space for parking. So there Amazing. was there was like a tailgate feel, um, which is unfortunate about U.S. Bank Stadium. You know, there's a part of me that kind of wanted the stadium to be up in Arden Hills yeah. and and have that tailgating experience sort like of like Kansas City had. Yeah. And the, well, yeah, the Met, the Met had. And, uh, and now that we're back on the same place where the Metrodome was, it's like, it's nice for location, but there's just no ambiance outside the stadium. It's true. There's no tailgating like Lambeau or somewhere. No. And I remember no. as a kid going to Met Stadium and everybody tailgated. Yeah. And it was fun. So you were always a sports fan or Minnesota sports fan growing up? Oh, man, huge, yeah. We used to go uh, yeah, to all the Vikings games as a kid, Purple Bee Bleeders. I went to the games and saw Purple Bee Bleeders. I'm kind of giving my age away, but, I mean, to see Fran Targenton and Chuck Foreman and Modershot and, oh, man, I knew them all. Yeah. Maybe and you're a big Rod right. Carew fan. <clears throat> huge Rod Carew fan, yeah. He was my hero growing up. You know, you'd go to the game early and you'd go down and he'd be, you know, on first base taking shagging balls. And I would see him. I remember he would put tobacco inside a bubble gum and then chew it. <laughs> <laughs> As a kid, I'm like, wow. And then I'm like in the Little League, you know, chewing tobacco because of it. But <laughs> I don't know if it was Minnesota or just, I don't know. We, would, we used to chew tobacco all the time and try to play baseball. But when you're that young. I don't know, 12, 13, 14, 15, and, like, you're chewing tobacco and trying to play baseball. and I don't think the coaches were necessarily, like, into it. So they didn't know? Well, yeah, I mean, you try to kind of sneak it. But also you, just, you weren't very functional, like, at that age, chewing tobacco. Then you'd switch to gum because, you know, you'd be dizzy. And, but I guess I was, like, influenced by going and seeing professional baseball players at an early age chewing tobacco, so I'd try it. So why Rod Carew? Like, what was it about? Did he have a, a, a pivotal moment, like in a game, or you saw him on TV and you're like, ah, that's the guy that I can relate to? I guess first it was just uh, being a Twins fan, but then my God, he was a, such an incredible hitter. I mean, it was like a, it was ballet. I mean, the the guy hit like 500. I mean, he was always chasing Ted Williams, right? He'd be on the cover of Time Magazine, like you know, baseball's greatest hitter of all time, and you know, you'd see guys hitting. If they were getting up to 300, you know, like, yeah, it's respectable. 300, right. 3, yeah. 15, 3, you know, like, wow, he's doing well. He's hitting like 500. I mean, he would be in the four. I mean, he was just such an amazing pure hitter that you couldn't. It was like watching Michael Jordan of the era, right? For It was like the Michael Jordan of baseball during that era. Yeah. Um, and it was just, it was golden to watch. Did you try to mimic his swing and everything too? <laughs> Out, outside of the, the gum chewing with tobacco, did you try to like mimic his actual movements? No, I was more a sw- swing for the fence kind of guy. <laughs> I never had the patience to go for singles, especially like when you're in Little League and Babe Ruth and, like, these, you know, meatballs are coming down the plate. You know, I wasn't going for singles. <laughs> so I was swinging for the fences. So I grew up a Cincinnati Reds fan. <laughs> growing up in, too. Growing up in Iowa, southern Iowa, for half of my life, it was all dominated by WGN in Chicago. Sure. Right? Of and course, so yeah. Wisconsin, Iowa. My brother, Aaron, is still a huge Cubs fan. But, but I – 
was either because of TBS, kind of a Braves fan, kind of a Dale Murphy yeah, fan. Yeah, sure, Dale Murphy, yeah. And then I really migrated and started loving the Cincinnati Reds because I think they would just play Chicago a bunch. And I, and a typical kid thing, I like the color red. You know, I was like, I'm like, well, that's yeah. a pretty team. Like, oh, that's a <laughs> cool, cool logo. Yeah. yeah, I like that. And then, so I tried to mimic Eric Davis's swing at times. You remember that little swing? That guy, he had yeah. like his hands down really low. Oh, for sure, and he yeah. just looked like he was super nonchalant and this major hitch before the ball would come. <laughs> <laughs> and he just jacked the ball out of the park. And, you know, here I am in Little League in practice trying, and my coach is like, what the hell are you doing? I'm like, hey, I'm Eric Davis. And like, get your bat up, get your elbow up, whatever. Yeah. He was a great, uh, great player. I don't know. I love looking back and seeing those guys. I loved Willie, Willie Stargell, and uh, the Reds had a great seventy-seven, seventy-eight. Um, the big yeah, red that's machine, probably yeah. The Joe big Morgan, red machine, yeah. Pete Rose, mm-hmm. um, Greg, Greg Lewinsky, Greg, uh, Lu, Greg Lou. Boy, that doesn't sound right. Big, guy. it's totally. I'm, I'm saying a Monty Lewinsky, and <laughs> yeah, you're, you're mixing. I'm mixing uh, skis. Yeah, different uh, famous. <laughs> you're <or> mixing <laughs> Polish names. <laughs> different type of celebrities. Well, you know who I loved, and this was because of I had to wear rec specs, rec specs when I was growing up in middle school, and uh, I loved Chris Sabo. Chris Sabo was like their third baseman. Yeah, he's so it was great. like Sabo and Larkin, and then can't forget about like Rob Dibble. You know, crazy pitcher that would come out at the end of the game. Sure. Um, so because I had to wear rec specs and I was super self-conscious about it, I'm like, hey, there, there's a professional baseball player that's out there wearing these dorky glasses like I am, you know? Surely. <laughs> <laughs> You're like James Worthy. Yeah, James Worthy. And then, uh, you know, like Eric Dickerson, who I had, Dickerson when I played yeah. football, you know? So I, uh, I was such a big Vikings fan. I went once to go get an autograph. Uh, I was at my grandparents' house up in northern Minnesota, and I heard that uh, Joey Browner, Chuck Foreman – uh, and there's one other player was going to be at the Kmart up in Fergus Falls. So I said, Grandma, Grandpa, I'm gonna, can I take your car? I want to go to Fergus Falls and meet these guys. And it was hysterical because they were like just sitting behind a table in Kmart in Fergus Falls. And there's nobody really there, right? So I was able to just walk up and be like, hey, guys, hi, my name is Eric. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> and I started talking to them and Chuck Foreman had like a hangover. And he's like, anybody got any Tylenol? Like, really get, my head's killing me. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I love you even more. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll get you. You know what I mean? Uh, were you starstruck at all? Oh, huge. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Joey Brown always loved his hands, right? Like, you'd see the guy, like, run down some guy from behind and just one-arm him, grab his jersey and, like, tackle him. And I always loved Joey Browner. And uh, and Foreman, which I thought was an interesting story, is telling me that one time he was uh, running and he got hit and his uh, contacts flew out. And he, he couldn't see. He like well, they were on the ground looking for his contacts. It just made me think of the story when you said you were wearing the you know the specs yeah. and yeah. But he was doing it with contacts, which I had no idea. And then yeah, I didn't he know played the either. rest of the game. He couldn't see where the holes were and stuff. And he's just like running, and he probably had two hundred yards something like that. Yeah, he probably still went off for like two hundred <laughs> yeah. yards running over people, and probably not even remembering until he watched film. And he's like, ah, I don't remember <laughs> running over that guy. Like I saw this guy over here, but I, my yeah. eyes were so blurry. He just went forward. I mean, he loved that. I love that spin move he had. He hit the line. Good duo. Yeah, 180 or 360, whatever that is. And so, what do you think about our boys right now? I don't know. I thought last game they showed potential. I mean, I mean, it's tough when you have a, a new bunch of cornerbacks, and then injuries are just plaguing the hell out of the team, right? Yeah. And then what you draft a guy who hadn't played in the system as linebacker, and I mean, you'd be more one to analyze this than me. But uh, from an outsider, just you know, layman point of view, it just seems like they are. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, you weren't really tackling in practice, right? Mm-mm. And so, I don't know. It feels like they're just kind of getting lit up on their secondary. 
Um, and then when I feel like when Daniil gets back, they'll be able to rush the corners a little bit more. Yeah, which will be exciting. Hopefully, he's coming back soon. I don't know. Are there any response? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, they injury? say it's a neck injury that you know is going to require some time. I think the last report that I saw was he's getting more strength back into his neck. Okay, and that he's trending in the right direction, but you know, any anybody with a neck injury, oh, terrible injury. You know, it, it's going to feel good even with a helmet on, and then you go to make you, you take some of those hits and. It's just you just don't know, and sometimes it's not even the direct hits; it's the hits like on the side, you know, at an angle, and uh, it's hard to kind of do those movements and strengthen your neck either in the training room or the or the uh, or the the weight room. So, man, I'm, I'm with you. I hope we get him back. Can fast. I ask you about football? Yeah, I feel like I, I get a bit tangential, but for, the funny thing, I just want to go back quickly. When we first met, I was I came to Minneapolis with all the guys in Broken Lizard mm-hmm. that we make Super Troopers and Beer Fest with. And uh, we came to Mark Charity's, uh, Mark Parrish's charity event. And we saw with you, Mark, I think, introduced us to you. And all five of us were like, oh, my God, it's a Ben Lieber. He's playing as a linebacker, the Minnesota Vikings. We were so, uh, we're so, we're such sports guys that we totally like dorked out when we got to meet you that you were actually like a professional football player that actually played the NFL. And then Mark, obviously, we knew from the NHL, which was awesome too. But uh, we like had, I mean, we had to get our picture taken with you. I don't know how you felt about the time, but we were all like, hey, can we get your picture taken with you? Which is so weird because I was thinking the same thing about you guys. Oh, really? Like, oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, like everybody, everybody that I knew growing up, like we loved Super Troopers. We loved your guys' little comedy troupe. I mean, still, still love you guys are still together. But at that point in time, it was like, I was thinking like, holy shit, like, whoa, that that's like the whole, like, no way. And I remember after that calling my brothers, I'm like, guys, guess who I just met? <laughs> and I would like tell them, they're like, no way. And so like, I would tell the story. So I was just as geeked out that you guys were like talking to me as I was talking to you guys. Because we were sending pictures around like, hey, we took a picture of Ben Lieber. And then Soda, I think, even reached out to you to see if he could like come meet you in Coronado. Like you... You, you still had a place, I think, in San yeah, Diego, yeah. and then Soder said, hey, I'm going to Coronado with my family, and he's like, do you think I could call Ben? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Reach yeah, out to totally. Him. Great. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have loved that. <laughs> um, so getting into your acting stuff, growing up here in Minneapolis, was that something that you did as a kid, too? I mean, I know you played sports. You're a big sports guy. Yeah. You're a big baseball uh, player. Um, but was, like, theater and the, the arts always sort of in your blood as a kid? No. <laughs> no, no. I mean, obviously, I loved comedies growing up. But I like I couldn't get enough of post right there, vacation, you know, behind you mm-hmm. on the wall. I I couldn't get enough of like Fletch and Caddyshack and Monty Python and Animal House. You know, Caddyshack was just such a huge influence, and anything Saturday Night Live that was the early Saturday Night Live guys with Bill Murray and Chevy Chase. So I don't know. I mean, it was, that was just early. Like, just couldn't get enough as a kid of taking all that stuff in, like so many other. People. I mean, I'd say Americans, but geez, all around the world. Yeah. So uh, I think that just had a huge influence in my subconscious. But I wasn't like a kid going to children's theater or doing plays at an early age whatsoever. I mean, I played, you know, trumpet in elementary school or something like that. If that counts as the arts. But it wasn't high school. I guess I was. I was really. I was really into baseball. I was. Uh, I grew up in Hopkins. And uh, I played with a group of guys where we just uh, were a crew for a long time, and we. Uh, man, we kind of formed a squad of this group in Hopkins, and uh, we had a, f- a friend's father who was really active as a coach, and so he would sign us up for traveling teams. You know, he would take, like, guys that were in Little League, but he'd kind of handpick this group of guys, and then we'd form a traveling team, 
and he would personally arrange other teams for us to play, and we drive to Marshall and all over Minnesota, like as this squad, uh, and playing baseball together so much so that we kind of grew up learning uh, as a group. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I, you know, I, I split off and I went to uh, Breck in tenth grade to go, uh, kind of just as a you know college prep kind of thing, trying to get into school and. I kind of regret it because I then I didn't get to go play baseball, continue playing baseball with this group of guys that I really really loved hanging out with, and and they were really talented. So much so that they went on to play in the state championship at the Metrodome, and they lost by one run in the seventh inning. You know, but I, I went and watched. You know, I had to watch in the stands, yeah, yeah. and uh, so I only tell that story is that uh, I just I spent a lot of time playing baseball growing up. You know, I remember one summer playing 60 games. Wow. And when you're 13, 14 years old, that's, that's a lot of baseball. That's a lot of baseball. So it wasn't a lot of time for theater. I wasn't really thinking about it. But then as I got older and then I went to, you know, the high school I went to, I went to Breck and I was captain of the high, high school baseball team there. And again, I was, that was sort of my mindset. But I started picking up the guitar and kind of digging the guitar. And I got asked to come audition for like playing the guitar in a show not like in the show itself but like accompanying the show sure. by playing a guitar and like sure. a, it was like a violin and guitar and a drum or something like that and I said oh, that sounds kind of cool so I got to play my guitar I was an electric guitar ACDC Zeppelin that kind of stuff so it was a thing to do and then uh, I don't know somehow I, I went and auditioned for uh, Greece or something senior year in high school and I probably showed up like in my letterman's jacket yeah, and I would say anywhere else that I you go to school, I'm sure the theater director would have like laughed at me, right? Like in, if it was Glee or some TV show, and like the jock shows up to audition for a play with all the theater kids, I would imagine like anybody else would just have laughed, right? And if if the other kids had laughed at me when I went up there, I probably would have walked away, right, and not did it. But for some reason, at Breck at the time, we had this amazing theater director who was incredibly supportive. And looking back, I'm like, why in the hell did he cast me? Because I had no experience, and I'm probably wearing a letterman jacket, and all I do is think about baseball. And I showed up one day, and he gives me a role. And so, like, I was kind of blown away that I was sort of accepted. And it was uh, it was this kind of weird environment where uh, you were allowed to try things. Yeah. And it kind of gave me this thing, like, oh, okay, maybe I can do both. Maybe I can play baseball. And so I was actually captain of the high school baseball team, and I would have to be leading captain's practices. But then I'd be like, uh, Coach, i got to go. i got to practice for a musical. I was actually cast as Danny Zuko in Greece, you know, the John Travolta role. And I would have to. So you had a huge role in that, <laughs> in that play. Yeah, yeah. And I just sang. And you'd and never done any sort of acting or stage acting or plays or anything like that. Nothing dramatic. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. One of the biggest characters in this play, yeah, you're the guy. Yes. I had done a small – that fall, I had done a small part in The Crucible. Okay. So they had taken a chance to be a small part in The Crucible, and I guess that gave me a little confidence. I auditioned for Greece, and I get cast, which is ridiculous. So and how did your baseball buddies feel about that? <laughs> this is hysterical. Well, and my coach, you know, my coach uh, was an unbelievable baseball coach. His name was Joe Kordowski, and he played with the Minnesota Gophers on the team that had Paul Molitor and Dave Winfield. So Cordo was the shortstop for the Gophers. Paul Molitor played second, Dave Winfield pitched. And they were a great team, and he went on to like, – he, he could have had a longer career. He didn't really want to uh, dig around the minors forever. Yeah. So he ended up uh, being the baseball and football coach at Breck. Great guy. An unbelievably talented guy. But, you know, to see the captain be like, uh, Coach, i got to take off. I got, <laughs> I got singing lessons. <laughs> i got makeup <laughs> here in about an hour. i got to go home, and i got to do this. And I do the sprints early so I can just go take off, and uh, <laughs> i got to go get fit for a wardrobe. Uh I got shit, but it was such a cool school and environment that it was in a fun way, right? You know, yeah. like if you can't take a ribbing, have a little bit of thick skin. And I think people appreciate I was trying something different. Yeah, which is, 
I don't know. Maybe I maybe I'm wrong in this, but I feel like that's that was pretty progressive for that time. You know, to not feel like you're stuck in this this athlete silo. You're you're an athlete. You're a jock. Oh no, you're you're in the band. Oh, you're in the choir. And at least that was my experience growing up. I and mean, we're not too far away yeah. in age. And you know, I actually did have an interest in doing something like that, but I was way too scared to like break out of that mold. Like, oh, you're you're known as the jock and the and the football, you know, whatever sports guy. That's not your world. Like, so I just kind of stayed in my world yeah, and totally. just kind of and did that thing. Yeah. But that's that's great that that school allowed you to to kind of do that and do that not feeling self-conscious about, oh, you're, you know, captain of the baseball team. You got to kind of stay in your lane. Yeah. No, I thought that was one of the coolest things about the school, actually. They encourage you to try different things that was out of your comfort zone, which I would recommend to anybody. If somebody were asked me a life lesson, I'd say try things that are out of your comfort zone. And I guess when I got to Colgate then, I was going to try to play baseball. Well, it was Division One. Mm-hmm. Guys were just big and huge and fast, and it was a different world. So, But because of that moment of being encouraged in high school, I felt comfortable trying out for some of the theater in college, which I never got cast in anything. That then you, got you didn't? The, no. Oh, God, no. It was hysterical. Because then it got to the point when it was like real theater, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not just some high school yeah, play. Yeah, like some uh, supportive high school coach. I mean, a supportive high school drama teacher that would actually, you know, take a chance on you. It's like, no, you're competing against the best of the best from all over the country, uh, small school of state New York. You know, that had like a real theater program. It was uh, So where were you deficient, though? If you look back, now that you have experience actually shooting real movies, yeah. um, where, do you th- where do you think that you just fell short when you're in college <laughs> that you know now? Well, I said no experience sort of like on how to be an actor, right? How to approach. I never had really classes or any background. I mean, imagine if you just said, I want to play football, and you showed up, but you didn't really know schemes or right. angles or, you know, like you just didn't have any knowledge of it, and I didn't have any experience. So, you know, at audition for the theaters, and I, I just remember like the director one time he asked me, uh, are you sure you're auditioning for this this play? <laughs> I I think I so. Thought so you know, um, I just didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have my head on my ass. But then they started doing like theater. I'd just get involved in like smaller stuff, like theater productions, and then eventually. Um, I got involved in some like they weren't university theater productions, but they were like smaller student theater productions yeah. that weren't it's in club. the theater. It's club, yeah. yeah it's I didn't club. make the team, but exactly. I'm I'm a club. It was like in a Merle. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, hey guys, wanna go put, grab some friends and go put on a yeah, show? Let's go play flag football and then we'll go do this drama club. <laughs> it was yeah. It was getting your feet wet for sure. But that's kinda how Broken Lizard started. I mean, Jay and I were roommates and Kevin Heffernan so Kevin, Jay, Steve and I were all in a fraternity together. And then Paul Soder was like one of our pals. Paul Paul was actually getting the leads in these theater productions. Oh, so he was actually the the thespian. Of he the was he came in as a freshman. He got the lead in the university theater production. Oh wow! He's like a singer and a performer. You know, he was the guy in high school that did theater. So he did all that. Okay, so he yeah. had more experience actually at a, in high school. Big time, big time. You know, I I think one of the, my favorite stories that I read about you was how you and Jay who's the director of a lot of your guys' movies. Does he, does he direct everyone? He directed five out of the six. Okay. Um, how you guys kind of got to know each other through Rush at your fraternity, and you guys did the the, the tough guy challenge sort of thing. And that's kind of the, the, the impetus of where it started. And basically for people that don't know, um, you guys meet – 
you start striking up a conversation. Apparently, he didn't actually want to like entertain any. Like he was out there building something or whatever. And um, you, because again, for the for the people that don't know, you have a prosthetic leg. You were born without uh, a fibula, and you basically hammered or something. You hit your ankle with the hammer that he had. And he was like, whoa, holy shit. Like, what is this guy doing? You want to hear the story? <laughs> yeah, I want to hear the story. <laughs> I'll try to tell it briefly yeah. to get, get along. So, I, like I mentioned, I, I wasn't getting cast, so I thought I better sign up for an acting class or something to try to figure out why I was so terrible. And the first thing they make you do is sign up for uh, set-building classes. How that helps you become a better actor, I don't know, but it was free labor, right? So they make you show up on a Saturday mornings, like 8 o'clock in your college, right? So you're hungover as hell. And I was a freshman, and Chandler Sekar was a year ahead of me, and he was asked to go to this set building class. He was also taking acting st- classes, but to try to rush me as a pledge mm-hmm. in the fraternity. And he was reluctant. He's like, ah, fine, because they t- kind of made him do it. So he shows up, and we're both hammering away at some set. And so he tries to strike up a conversation. And he's like, hey, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from Minnesota. And he's like, oh, I'm from Chicago. And we just quickly, quickly deteriorate into city, which city was tougher. The Vikings, the Bears, all this kind of stuff. And and this was like when Sign of the Times came on. I'm like, dude, you wouldn't stand a night in Murderapolis, which was like the – do you remember, <laughs> remember that nickname of Minneapolis <laughs> no. at the time when Sign of the Times came out? And it was about, the, I don't know, the gang violence that was happening in Minneapolis. This was back in the late 80s. So anyway, you wouldn't stand, you couldn't stand a night in Murderapolis, and he's like, "Okay, Purple Rain, yeah, whatever, yeah." You come back and talk to me when the Bears won a Super, when your Vikings won a Super Bowl, and you know because Bears had yeah. dominated, yeah. right? They were fucking great at the time, and he loved Jim McMahon. He's always wearing like a headband and a McMahon jersey, and I was like, "This fucking guy." What so a I was like, "What a douche, douche right? You fucking quarterback rides a moped, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this fucking sunglass and the Superback shuffle." So I was just like, "Oh, this fucking guy." So I said, oh, okay, Chicago, you're that tough, huh? And I just reached down and I grabbed the hammer that we're building sets with. And I said, oh, you're so tough. Can you do this? And I go, whack! And I smack myself in the ankle as hard as I can with the hammer. <laughs> and I see Chandler Secker go, oh. And now he's like, you know, we're just, to- I'm totally making fun of his city. So he has to be in it for city pride. So he's like, oh, you want to play that game, do you? So he grabs the hammer and he's like, oh, shit. He goes, whack, smacks himself in the ankle, and he's like, oh, my, I'm trying to be tough, right? And I'm like, oh, God, I didn't think he was going to do that. (laughs) And I'm like, ah, guess what? I'm up again, right? So I'm like, all right, I'm going to fucking knock this guy out. So we're in the Presidium March, and there's these cement walls. And (laughs) I got this idea that if I just go kick the cement wall straight on as hard as I can, there's no way he's going to do it, right? So I get a running start, and I go get a, and I kick the cement wall straight on as hard as I can. And I said, you that tough, Chicago? And all of a sudden I hear, fuck you, Minnesota. <laughs> and he comes running. I think he's wearing Birkenstocks, too. He was always wearing Birkenstocks. And he kicked a cement wall straight on hard. Oh. And I'm starting to feel a little guilty this time. And I'm like, oh, man. He drops the ground. He's, you know, rubbing his toe, but he's still in it. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this dude's tougher than me. This dude's definitely tougher than me. But I'm like, all right, I'm going to knock him out. I'm going to knock him out of the game right here. There's no way he's going to do this because I see that there's a pneumatic staple gun in the theater. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, a compressor and a hose no. leads to a pneumatic staple gun. And I said, hey, Chicago. And he's like, you don't have the guts. And I was like, oh, yeah? You don't think I'll do it? He's like, no, I don't think you do it. I don't think you, I don't think you have guts to do that. <laughs> and I go, okay. How now, brown cow? And I put a three-quarter inch staple into my leg, through my <gasps> pant jeans. And he just fucking starts freaking out, right? He's like, no, you didn't do that, did you? You okay? You okay? I'm like, yeah, I don't know, man. You're probably going to have to take me to the hospital afterward. You know, I'm just playing it up totally, right? Like limping around, 
until I acted it up. And he's like, oh, my God. He comes over to inspect, and he sees, like, you know, my pants are, like, stapled into my leg. And he's pulling on my pant leg, and it's still, like, it's stapled in there. And he's like, holy shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, dude, dude, what? And uh, I didn't think he's going to go away, but I see he picks up the staple gun. And he's now, not going to do it. He's He starts searching for, like, the fatty part of his leg, thinking if he does it on the back of his leg where it's a little bit, like, looser for some reason, it's not going to hurt as much. And he see, he's, like, sweating. He's like, oh, my God, I can't I – don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to do this. He goes, I don't want it. I said, you don't, I don't, you don't have to do this. And he was like, I don't have to do this. I want to do this. Or I don't want to do this. I have to do this. That's what he said. I don't want to do this. I said, you don't have to do this. He goes, I don't, I don't want to do this. I have to do this. Anyway, something like that. I'm screwing up the story. But he puts the stable gun on the back of his leg, and he's about to pull the trigger. And I was like, hold on, hold on. Are you fucking crazy, dude? And I pop my leg off. I'm like, I got a wooden leg. And he fucking just bursts out fucking laughing. And he's like, ah, <laughs> holy shit. And uh, that's kind of how, that's how we first became friends. Uh, he thought it was hysterical, went back to the fraternity. He's like, we got to get this fucking guy in here. He's got a fucking broken toe and a <laughs> bruise yeah, on his he's ankle. He's limping into the fraternity he's limping house. We gotta yeah. get this guy in. Yeah. This great. guy's great. Yeah, this guy's I need awesome. some ice and a beer. <laughs> so yeah, it sounds so like you our... beat the shit out of your prosthetic leg. Oh, I used to. Like, how many did you I go through? To. They used to be wood. Like now, they're like high tech and carbon graphite and foam and stuff like that. But back then, it was like a chunk of wood. I don't know. I would just <laughs> I would take them to the doctor when I had to get him to repair. And he's like, "What did you do to this thing?" Like I another would, frat night? Yeah. Another, another Friday night at the frat? Oh, man. You put cigars out on them. <laughs> you could say that your legs crossed and, you you know, you'd just be sitting here like this. And you'd, if, I don't know. I shouldn't, I, 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 this is probably not apropos, but this is back in the day. It was like, you know, Animal House. And this is many years ago. And you'd actually have pledge nights and, you know, you'd just mess with people. And we never did anything violent or harmful or anything like that. But, you know, there are nights when you mess with people. And I would uh, be like, oh, you want to get in here, do you? Would you do this? And I'd take the cigar and I'd put it out on my ankle. <laughs> this is what you have to do if you want to get in here. You know, we just do dumb shit like that. <laughs> I probably shouldn't We're not going to make you stuff. drink this whole tub of mixed up alcohol <laughs> and and shove it down your, your stomach. We're actually going to see if you can burn yourself with a cigar because watch this guy. And trust me, I never made anyone burn themselves. <laughs> yeah, you That's going to come yeah, back to me. Yeah. You can't say much <laughs> <laughs> It was putting the fear into them and it was just messing with people. So did you kind of treat your leg like a prop and a prank even in high school? Like when did that become sort of a maybe an icebreaker for you? A little bit. I guess I, I remember a couple incidences in high school. I remember we were like at a, a retreat, like a, a all-grade retreat one time at a camp in Minnesota. And uh, my ankle broke. Like there were times when my leg would just break. Like I just remember walking down the hallway one time. And if I, I mean, if a componentry inside of there just breaks, you know, you just pah, you just fall down. Right. I mean, you have nothing right. to stand on anymore. Yeah. And all of a sudden you got to limp out to the office and you got to limp to have your mom pick you up or something. But uh, one time I went at this great and we're at a camp in the middle of nowhere and my ankle breaks and it just separated. So if I put pressure on it and I turned, I could make like it twist. Do, I okay. could make a twist and do like a 360. Oh. Right, like the whole ankle was just broken, and I could. And I remember one time we were kind of going to mess with this camp counselor that was up there, and I said uh, I was double jointed or something like that. And I remember like stepping on my leg and doing a hundred three sixty twist, but my foot <laughs> stayed forward. And the guys like, he's like gonna puke. <laughs> so we did a little stuff like that just to mess with people. 
Oh, that is so great. Well, you have to, right? I mean, in baseball, once I, I a pitch came was some dude threw a fastball and was coming in just enough time for me to pull my ankle up, my left ankle, my right, my prosthetics on my right leg, and I kind of push off on that side so I can get power and stuff like that. It's not that big of a deal, but uh, I lifted up my left leg just in time, but the ball hits my leg and it shoots back to the pitcher. And the ump didn't had no clue what was going on. It just went kink, you know. And my bat's up here, and he's like, everyone's <laughs> looking around because you know if you got hit by a ball, it would just kind of hit your leg and it would just drop. Yeah, right? yeah. And it but, certainly wouldn't make the sound that no, it probably made. Yeah, and, and and it shot back all the way to the pitcher mound, and everyone's like, "What just happened? I don't know what happened. You get hit. You get hit. You're all right." I'm like, "Yeah, I'm cool." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little sore. It'll yeah. probably swell, but just a little bit. <laughs> That'll be good. Yeah, no big deal. <laughs> no big deal. And I think that's the that's the other fascinating thing about your love of baseball. You were super active as a kid, and all the while you had to do it with you know one leg. You know, yeah. like so you you had to play baseball, you know, handicapped, but you played right up with the big boys up until the, up until Division one college. Yeah, that's amazing. But otherwise I was I could hold my weight. Um, how much did sports because of that and maybe just because of your your life experience and maybe, you know, part of it's with your with your leg and all the stuff. How much of that prepared you for what you guys basically took on with Broken Lizard? Yeah, it's a good question. When I kind of travel around and do my speaking, I think it was, I mean, having a wooden leg um, really made me realize that um, you, uh, you know, life's not always fair. I guess that's what I'm trying to say is like, mm-hmm. you learn pretty early that life's not fair and it's not going to be easy, right? You're going to get knocked down. Um, you're not going to have the advantages of everybody all the time. So you better learn to get up pretty quickly if you want to stay and, uh, participate in life. So learning that at an early age, like for example, I, I took the sort of like the metaphor of going skiing and I loved, I wanted to go skiing as a kid because I grew up in Minnesota and liked to skate yeah. and ski, you know, you have Buck Hill and Afton, all these like places. And it was fun to go out with all the other kids and throw on the skis and the snow pants and hop on the bus and fly down a mountain. Right. Yeah. But on a wooden leg, it's fucking brutal. And so at first they, you know, they, they put me on outriggers and I was like, ah, you know, those like, uh, you it kind of skis with your hands, right? Oh, your right, hands. yeah, yeah. You know, you got the, the kind of looks like a walker, but with skis yep. on it. And I don't know, I tried it once. I'm like, ah, I don't know, I just kind of want to be like everybody else. And so my mom said, all right, well, you know, you can, but you're going to fall down a lot. And I did. I mean, every, I mean, I'd try, <laughs> I used to wipe out all the time, you know, trying to ski on a wooden leg was really freaking hard. But I guess the lesson I learned was like, you fall down, you just get back up. You know, mm-hmm. you fall down, you get back up. And you just keep doing that over and over again. And pretty soon you're going from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain. Yeah. If you can call Minnesota mountains, right. hills. Right. right. You go from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill. But um, that's the lesson I, tr- I learned later in life. And that's what I'm trying to relate to what you asked me is like, when you're trying to make a movie or you're trying to break in as an actor or, or try to film, like you're going to get rejected over and over and over again. And it's going to take years and years and years. But if you just keep getting back up over and over and over again and you don't kind of give up mm-hmm. and you realize that life's not going to be fair, other people are going to get more opportunities than you. Um, <clears throat> but if you just kind of keep applying that persistence of like trying, and if you keep trying, you keep trying, eventually you go from the top of the mountain to the bottom of the mountain and you make it through. And that's how I kind of learned to kind of just apply that earlier lesson in life to later in lesson in life when I'm making movies because – there was 10 years of rejection. I mean, you see people saw Super Troopers come out, and they thought, wow, you guys are an overnight success. You went to Sundance, and you sold this, and they got into a theater. But we, we were struggling in comedy clubs for 10 years, Yeah, like not eating. And I was I used to walk out in New York City. I used to sell CDs for $2 so I could buy a sandwich, you know? like, And that was those years of trying to get better. Yeah. 
And so it was 10 years before Super Troopers came out, and nobody ever talks about the 10 years when you're trying to get good at something. Yeah. But there's a ton of failure and falling down up until that. And there still is afterwards. We had to, we had to crowdfund Super Troopers too. Right. Yeah. And it took, what, 17 years? Yeah. I mean, I was consciously – I mean, it was a conscious choice to make it 17 mm-hmm. years later. We could have made it right away afterwards, but we wanted to make other films and try different characters and try different plots kind of because we yeah. were a comedy group. Like Monty, we saw Monty Python and you saw them try different movies. Yeah. So we didn't want to just make the same movie back to back. Sure, sure. Yeah, you guys want to kind of diversify and kind of, uh, you know, push yourself a little bit, you know, get outside your own boundaries. Yeah. I think the beautiful part of the story that you just told is the, the one catalyst to all that is the fact that it was you that wanted to go down the ski hill. Yeah. You know, and and I don't think that it would have made it wasn't as impactful if your parents were saying, no, you're going to go down the ski hill like everybody else. And you're going to you know, you're <laughs> going to you're going to be on regular skis. I think the lesson that you're kind of to piggyback off of it is what I'm picking up is just like with your acting stuff and being persistent. You can only be persistent with things that you care about, you know, like you have to want it first if you don't want it. It's hard to it's hard to be persistent. It's easy to give up when it's like, well, it's not really my idea. It's not my you know. It's not I'm not internally motivated to do this. It's because you're putting external pressure on me. Um, that's why I'm doing it. And then you, you face some sort of obstacle, a hard time, and you're like, well, it wasn't my idea anyway. And the beauty about what you're talking about is like, no, you said screw the outrigger. I'm doing this, <laughs> right. and I don't care if I fall down a, a thousand times. I'm going to do this. And then you did it. And now you like. No, we're, we're a part of a comedy troupe, and we want to do this. So we're going to go through 10 years <laughs> of scraping by in New York City, which, you know, I think the, the, the other fascinating part, and, and here's the question, is that you're one of a group of guys. Like, in that time, to make – to get super troopers out there uh, – did you have some dissension in the group? Like, were there guys like, guys, enough is enough. Like, we can only get rejected so many times. Like, it ain't going to happen. Like, there were, was there ever that give up time by anybody? So we started with more people in the group, and we had women in our group. And uh, they there's an there's attrition. Is that the word I'm looking mm-hmm. for? Atrophy? Attrition? Uh, people fell by the wayside because they it was a tough it was a tough life. You know, there were people that wanted to start families and have kids and, and – uh, doing, you know, shows in Greenwich Village for three people on a Friday night was not, like, conducive to a family life, per se, or not making any money, you know. Um, so, yeah, so kind of whittled – it got whittled down to the five of us who were willing to kind of stick it out the longest, which is very natural, I think. But uh, the five of us never gave up. Um, we, we made a movie, Puddle Cruise, that didn't didn't make it. We, we made a, mo- a movie called Puddle Cruise before Super Troopers, and it got to Sundance, and it didn't get picked up. And I guess you could say, you know, that was a little frustrating because then you had to start from scratch again because then you had to write Super Troopers and, and make it and keep going. Um, but And I think if Super Troopers had not gotten bought at Sundance Film Festival, I think that would have been the end. Really? Because at that point, that's 10 years of really yeah. scraping by – None of us were making a dime on it, you know. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they would have gotten to a point if Super Troopers went to Sundance, didn't get picked up, nothing happened with it, and then you had to start over again. I don't know if we would have continued at that point because at that point we're almost 30 years old. So how does the process work? You guys are writing, rewriting the script, trying to perfect the the whole thing top to bottom. We're talking Super Troopers here. How do you even get the money and the funding to go to – to make a film 
and go to Sundance to pitch it. Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. Getting the, getting funding for a movie is the hardest thing you can do. And they're so freaking expensive. We made our first movie with Puddle Cruiser for $100,000 just by favors and uh, cutting ends. And we went back to college, our college school, Colgate, when nobody was there in the summertime and shot it. It's supposed to be college. So there's nobody in the background. There's no extras because no, that's, that's the only time they let us shoot there. So uh, so we got into Puddle Cruiser, uh, went to Sundance, didn't get distribution, but it did kind of show that we knew how to make a movie. Mm-hmm. So we wrote the script for Super Troopers. We went out to L.A. and we, we were able to get into studios to let people read it. And all the studios uh, liked it enough to call us in for meetings. And they said, hey, it's a really funny script. This is uh, really funny. Who, do you, who would you see acting in this? You know, and at the time, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon were really hot. I think they were coming off Goodwill Hunting or something like that. And they were like, you know who would be awesome as Thorny is Ben Affleck. And Jay, who played Thorny and was the director and one of the writers, was like, wow, that's, that's the part I was going to yeah, play. Yeah, that's me. That's me. Wait a minute, you know. And they all the studios wanted big-time actors to play the leads, which is how they make films and how they get – the return on their uh, investment is they get big time actors thinking that when it has an opening weekend, there's actually a chart where you can tell uh, actors the return that they can get. Huh. I can't remember the name of the chart right now, but you know, there you you put a certain. So uh, it's like a commodity, like yeah, you know, you know exactly. that th- this guy, if he's on the marquee, you're going to get yes. X millions of dollars in the box office on opening weekend. Yeah, it's like risk management, right? Right. They have these uh, calculations. So they wanted that, and we said, uh, we had to say, you know, we could have sold the script, and we were, you know, broke and poor and living out of our cars practically, and we could have easily sold it at that point and gotten some money. But we said, ah, man, you know, Monty Python can do it. You know, Monty Python's this five-man group that can actually act in their movies, and they're funny. Like, maybe we can too. So we had to say no to studios and then go back, rewrite the script, and then go try to find the money. Right. If the studio had accepted it, they would have financed it. Mm-hmm. So then we uh, we tried to send around anybody that we possibly might know, which weren't uh, really any finances at that at time. We're just broke sketch comedians in New York. And uh, we get a call that uh, this guy that had a friend that went to Colgate uh, said his, his our friend's father was in a, a, he's retiring from investment banking. And he's interested in, in Hollywood. He, you know, he's hmm. interested and in, he's made some money over the course of his years. And he's, he likes to do stand-up comedy. He likes comedy. And he's kind of curious, like, how, how do you make a movie in L.A.? How could I possibly get a foot in the door and being a producer? And our friend was like, you should send him your script. And we're like, yeah, right. I mean, what are the odds of a retired investment banker, 65 years old, laughing about a bunch of cops who play games yeah, on speeders yeah. that they pull over, right? He didn't think he'd be interested. But we're like, ah, fuck it. So we sent him the script, and we were shocked when we get a call back saying, hey, I think the script's funny. I'm willing to take a chance on you guys, and I'll give you a million dollars. Whoa. So that sounds like a lot of money, but in reality, it's incredibly low budget. I mean, that would fall into, like, the ultra-low budget range, even though it sounds like a lot. Yeah. But, I mean, any, any, most movies are $30 million to $100 million, Right. Right? And this was, like, $1 million. So we're like, yes, of course. We jumped all over it. So what? So real quick, what is his return? Like, what is what does the business deal look like? I'll give you guys a million dollars, and it's X, you know, percentage of any sort of returns. Like, how how is that fee structure figured out? About how is he going to get his money back? Yeah. Uh, well, the, you know, the thing was, he was a he was an investment banker, so he understood about returns on investment. Right. That's what he did for a living. So let's say, for example, he said. Um, I'll put a million bucks. I want 125% return on any profits that you make on this thing or the sale. You know what I mean? Like what you hope to do is take a movie to Sundance and sell it. Yeah. And then whoever buys that then puts it in the theaters. 
And there was this thing kind of happening at Sundance at the time where movies were getting bought at Sundance, right? Mm-hmm. There was there used to be kind of more of an ability to make an independent film and sell it at Sundance, and then people would put it in theaters. There used to be these things called mini majors, and that was uh, it includes Fox Searchlight, which is now Searchlight Pictures, and there used to be Warner Independent. There used to be a lot of these more studios, and, and independent films used to make a lot more money before sort of this advent of Superman films. Right. For, before the advent of Iron Man and Superman. Like right. there used to be an appetite back in the uh, early 2000s and late 19, 1990s where people actually went and saw independent films. Right. And smaller comedies. So the guy said, uh, yeah, all right, you sell it. I want, let's say, for example, and I'm making this up, 125% return. Like you got it, you know. And so we made the movie and we had to uh, submit it to Sundance. And then they agreed to... Uh, accept it, but they weren't going to put it in their competition. Uh, part of the reason was we we was Super Troopers. Yeah, they because I'm sorry, I'm I'm trying to think of Puddle Cruiser and Super Troopers because both of ours went to Sundance. But Super Troopers got in the Sundance Film Festival, and we had been there with Puddle Cruiser, so they said we like you guys. Uh, we're not going to put in dramatic competition because most dramatic competition things that are there are very like heavy. Uh, black, sure, like you know, living up to the name, the dramatic. It's very right. dramatic. Yeah. yeah, it might be a movie about AIDS or something like that. You know, like yeah. we have a silly comedy about cops, and it's not really the Sundance Fair. But they said, hey, we'll put it in the uh, midnight slot, which is normally reserved for like John Waters films, like these kind of crazy films that you show at midnight, these culty, kind of weird, off the wall kind of artistic films. And we're like, oh, midnight film, okay. Well, we're excited to get in, but we we weren't going to be in the dramatic competition that got all the press and the yeah. awards and all that kind of stuff. And you kind of had to win an award if you were hoping to get bought and going into a movie theater, right? Mm-hmm. You're kind of thinking, well, you got to win the festival, and then they say, we'll take the best movies. And now we're in this mi- the midnight competition, Friday night at midnight. Well, it turned out that everybody gets there, and that you, if you've heard about Sundance, it's a huge party. It's like Mardi Gras, mm-hmm. so everyone starts partying, drinking, going out to dinner, doing whatever. And all of a sudden, people start flocking this midnight screening. And we're like, whoa, okay, people are actually coming, right? And it turned out to be like the party to go to, like the fun thing to do on a Friday night. It was the opening night, Friday night, and Harvey Weinstein ends up, he's a bad name now, but at the time, he was a a huge influence. So if you saw Harvey going into a movie theater, other people from studios would go, hey, Harvey's Mm. going to that theater. And that would attract other studio heads. And what you really needed is an influencer, someone who can buy a movie. Right, you can show it to hundreds of people, but if nobody is in there to influence to buy it, it doesn't really matter right. if you're going to sell it. <clears throat> so we're thinking from a selling point of view. So a bunch of people come, they're partying, having a great time. Harvey happens to go in. Other people see that. All of a sudden, other buyers come in. It turns out to be a, a rowdy screening. I mean, people are laughing, having a great time. I think Harvey left after like ten minutes, but what it did is it got other people in the in the studio from other people from studio in the theaters, and they saw that the audience was laughing, having fun, and it turned out that this midnight screening was actually a a fun slot to be in instead of a bad thing. And uh, the next morning, Fox Searchlight, which is now Searchlight Pictures because mm-hmm. Disney bought Fox, Disney, yeah. uh, they uh, made an offer for the movie, and so Searchlight said, "We'll buy your movie for you know a certain amount of money, and we'll put it in theaters." And so we we're like, oh my so it happened God. just like that. So it you have, like you have a midnight screening, Harvey Weinstein, sort of like any influencer that we know today, goes in. People follow. They have a great time. And the next morning, Fox Searchlight says, "We want to buy it." Yeah, it happened just like that. That's how it happened. Yeah, but that was after ten years of like incredibly hard work getting there. But that was how it came. Did that down. seem like surreal? Like, it, like. You oh, spent yeah. ten years, and <laughs> yeah. then all of a sudden, in the span of less than twelve hours or twenty-four hours, it's 
it's bought and yeah. like this is actually happening, guys? Like, was there was there another party that night for you guys? <laughs> oh, huge! Yeah, I think yeah, it was that night or the next. We we threw a huge party, and uh, Patrick Swayze came and all sorts of people that are there for the film festival, right? And uh, it was cool. It was really fun. I mean, it was the first purchase of the. Uh, it was the first purchase of the festival. And so it kind of made news right away. Like, you know, by Saturday, the first, it was Friday night started. Saturday, there's already the first purchase. And uh, so it was like all of the newspapers and word got out and people wanted to come to parties. And How quickly did you know that your life was changing? Well, the funny thing was Searchlight said, we love it. Uh, we got, you know, when we got back to L.A., we had a meeting and they said, um, we don't like the ending. And there's a couple of scenes in here we don't love. So let's do some reshoots. And so it wasn't like the next week our life changed. <clears throat> we had to uh, write, plan out, shoot, reshoots. We probably took six months. And so we changed the ending. They liked the stoners that were in the beginning opening scene, and they wanted to bookend it. So at the original ending we had is that we were meet, we, we were meet undercover meatpacking workers, undercover meatpacking workers. And it turns out we were local cops busting uh, people trying to pass off expired meat. And they're like, yeah, it's funny, but let, the stoners are great characters. Let's find an ending where we bring them back at the end. And so then we uh, are undercover beer delivery guys, and we're delivering beer to an under, underage party, and we bust them up. So that was a fun – and that was a really smart note that they had, and they paid for that reshoot for that. And then, then we had this, like, little love scene in it where Thorny uh, had this uh, wife, and he was getting transferred, and they had this, like, scene where they talk in bed, and it's really kind of, like, heartfelt. And we're like, eh, I don't know if that fits in Super Troopers. Let's find a funny moment for that. And then we came back and we shot the scene when Jay walks in with the bananas and he said, who wants a mustache ride? Yep. And the German swingers are at his house and they're bouncing on the bed. And then that was a better funny punch. So we reshot that several months after we sold it. But then after we even got that edited, then we had to do – you have to do long leads to try to get people to come see it in the movie theater. So yeah. I think it's six months that you want long leads for magazines – and so it was then six months after that that you have to wait for this marketing time and you got to find a slot when it's available in theaters anyway. So it was a year and a half maybe even after we sold it that even felt anything and because, you know, we had to go back to waiting our waiting tables and doing our menial jobs while all this was going up before it even got to theaters. Did it feel like you're holding on to a secret? Like you could probably <laughs> tell people, right? But you probably didn't want to be out there broadcasting it to everybody you know just because there's maybe that, that – Part of you thinks maybe this isn't going to happen. Sure. <laughs> like this is going to fall through. Oh, of course. Yeah. It, it could come out of the theaters and nobody could like it. Yeah. Right? And you'd also tell people and they'd be like, yeah, sure you do. Right? Yeah, no sure. You yeah. sold a movie. Cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah that's gonna I be don't a see your name on the billboards right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. like you're, you're, you're ordering my fried chicken. It's so like, they're like. During that time, I worked as an intern at South Park. Like I was working at the front desk answering phones. And they would finish doing uh, an episode, and they would hand me the tape, and they'd be like, intern, here, run this over to Debbie Liebling, who was running Comedy Sense at the time. And it was due at, like, midnight on a Sunday night for, like, a Monday broadcast or whatever, whatever that day was. And, and I would have to – and I would run – like, to, to, I would drive it, but I would run it over to Debbie Liebling's house at, like, 11.55 before it was due at, like, midnight to, and I wow. was like the runner boy. I was uh, just running errands and doing whatever I could to make a buck. God, what did you learn from that whole crazy process in that group? Well, like, how long were you there? I was there for maybe three, four months. You know, and I yeah. was I was kind of always jumping around, just trying to find a job, job, just to pay the rent. Um, I don't know. I mean, they were just incredibly prolific. I mean, they're pumping out those episodes every week, right? And uh, they had a group of friends. You know, they had a really tight group of friends that they trusted and worked with well, which was kind of cool to see. Like we kind of had that in comparison. 
Yeah. And uh, just really professional, really funny guys. Yeah. Uh, I want to rewind here, backpedal a little bit about the the Super Troopers film. Their nude scenes. Yeah. Nude scenes always fascinate me in movies. <laughs> not not only just because you want to, you know, obviously as a guy and there's a, a nude scene with a girl, like you just want it piques your interest. Which I I think Rob Lowe. I listened to him one time in which you you now worked with him, but. I didn't know this, but I guess it's intentional to put nude scenes always, you know, about two thirds of the way into the movie because that's that's after the the peak of the movie, and you got to kind of tie into the to, to the conclusion. So he said a, a rough thing with movies is like, yeah, you always kind of put the nude scenes about three quarters of the way in because that's when people kind of lose interest, and he kind of kind of propels them to the end of the movie. But um, I don't know if that's true or not. But in Super Troopers, Kevin. Uh, has to is naked. Yeah, sure. Now is he fully naked? Yeah, equal opportunity. No way. That's a funny story. <clears throat> I mean, we always we always kind of comedically thought men naked is weird, right? Yeah. Like you just don't see it in movies that much. You'd see airplane grown up. There's always female nudity, yeah. but like male nudity, we thought was more comedic. And so like Kevin naked's can be. It's funny. It's funny, yeah. Especially like covered in powdered sugar. Yeah. But when the scene he was the day he was prepping to get covered in powdered sugar and naked in that jail cell, which is an homage to Rambo, when Stallone gets hosed yes, down yeah, the bottom yeah. of Rambo, like instead of like a fire hose, we had like a garden hose, and he's covered in powdered sugar instead. But <laughs> that was delicious. our odd to uh, Rambo. <laughs> but the uh, makeup woman quickly found that powdered sugar just doesn't really stick to a naked man very easily, and Kevin's sort of a hairless naked man as well, and so she had to cover him in Vaseline. No. <laughs> I like to shop that day. I have to co- no. cover Kevin Heffern and Naked and Vaseline. And then cover him in powdered sugar. So it's kind of clumpy. If you go back and look at it, it's sort of clumpy. You can kind of see the, yeah. God. And so he would have to be, so he's naked the whole time, just standing around waiting for the lighting change and whatever. <laughs> like he's, and he probably covered himself. He's a modest gentleman. He probably covered his, his kibbles and bits during those times. But the funny thing was, you, normally it's like a closed set, right? Out yeah. of respect for the actor. You just you, Normally it's just like the cameraman, the director, and... You don't really have many people. Oh, is that right? Yeah. If you do a nude scene or a love scene or something like that, you know, you usually turn off the monitor so people can't watch it that are outside of the room. It's very closed. But this day, Jay invites his family to come watch. Either his family said, I'm coming, and they happen to be there that day, or Jay invited him. We we like to think Jay invited him. But Kevin's doing these nude scenes, and right behind the camera is like eight Indians. (laughs) Like his mom and dad and cousins and sister. Welcome to Hollywood. (laughs) Yep. Uh, yeah, so that was great. There's all uh, Kevin's parts right there for you. Yeah. <laughs> but part of fun of shoot, like us shooting is like we always write stuff knowing the other person has to do it. Yeah. Right? We're such good friends. We've been doing it forever that we you write something knowing the other person is eventually going to have to act it, right? Yeah. So it's as much fun writing the part that Kevin has to get naked and get covered in powdered sugar that, that he actually has to do it. I mean, part of the fun is writing and then being there and watching him having to do it. Yeah. Your your bio is writer, producer, um, director, comedian, all that stuff. Of all of your roles that you've been a part of, the acting, the producing, the writing, which of those probably gives you the most satisfaction? It's it's fun collaboratively writing the jokes, uh, but I guess it's most fun when you're like the camera's rolling. Mm -hmm. There's a certain pressure – uh, when that you know, like all right action and you know that what that camera is capturing is going to end up um, on the screen or on a DVD forever. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you got to kind of up your game. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's how you feel like when the balls snap. Yeah, right? it's and for the real. Man. Really, it's like you're gonna that's gonna be on a highlight reel or on a 
you know, video forever, right? So you kind of, yeah, adrenaline kind of kicks in and you kind of have to up your game a little bit. So I like that feeling. There's some adrenaline junkie in me that likes that feeling. Like when that camera rolls, you got to up your game. So how much are you rehearsing beforehand? Like in general, you guys are going to shoot a scene. Um, you obviously have the script because you guys have done all your reads and stuff. And you guys actually writing the script kind of know the flow of it pretty, pretty well. How many times will you guys go through the scene before the camera light actually goes on? We do it most of it in rehearsal because we never have a big budget. We never have the $30 million that these mm-hmm. studio films have. So we have to really kind of get ours down while well, we do it in writing make sure that we do a read-through to make sure that those lines work. And then we rehearse it, so then when you do uh, shoot, you really only get one or two takes. Is that it? Yeah. Because you get so many pages to cover in a day, and it just takes forever, especially if you have lighting changes or all that kind of stuff. So you really have to kind of nail it. Yeah. You know? That's a lot of – to me, that seems like a lot of moving parts, especially if it's – you know, there's – let's just say there's three or four of you guys in a scene. Not only are you – maybe voicing something or acting something, but even if you're just a third-party <clears throat> person in that, you've got to feel the scene, correct? Like, you yeah, can't totally. just stand there like a <laughs> yeah. like a cardboard cutout, you know? So, like, you've, you've even got to, to figure out that part of it, and the mannerisms are like, oh, how, sh- how should I react when he makes that joke? Like, you know, yeah. all of that, to me, is fascinating. It's fun. The thing that I, I find hilarious with your acting style is you're very animated, facially animated. Is that something that you f- you felt like you had to do, or is it natural? Like you you were very dramatic with your eyes, with the way your face looks, and I don't know even know if you do that intentionally, but that's at least the way it comes off to me. Is that a, is that a practice thing? Is that something that you had to work on? Sometimes I see it, I think I'm too big. You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. it's probably something that I'm learning over time is to become smaller, a like little more subtle with it. Yeah, yeah. I think I could try to make my comedy a little more subtle. It's probably from inexperience or just not being. Mm-hmm. You know, I think really great comedians probably can do stuff a little more subtly. But I feel like it works. Hopefully. Hopefully. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, everything that I've I've watched a lot of your guys' movies, and it seems like your character, it seems like that person would would do that, okay. you know. And, may, and maybe you're just I, – I mean, shoot, I do it myself when I when I play football. Like, you know, you're watching yourself on film. I don't know how you are, but I, hate I, I always <laughs> felt like I had to have a – a drink in my hand (laughs) (laughs) and sort of be in the right moment to watch yourself. But, and you feel the same way? Like when you watch yourself Uh, on film, you're just like, oh God. It's like when you hear your voice on a a voicemail or recorded and you're like, that's my voice. Yeah. Yeah, it's the same way you see yourself. So Brian Cox, who obviously, you know, uh, played Captain O'Hagan's Super Troopers and he's now in succession. He told us he's never, ever watched something he's been in. And we're like, what? I mean, you're in Braveheart. Some of these greatest movies of all time, and he's like, "I never watched it. I can't watch myself." And you're like, "Wow, you've missed out. You've missed out on some great movies." See, I think that's fascinating because you hear other actors and even other, you know, even now what I'm doing, other broadcasters, they'll say, "Oh yeah, I go back, at, you know, after every game, and I listen to myself, and I, you know, I want to do this, that, and the other." And you know, you hear some actors like, "Oh yeah, absolutely." As much as it's painful, like I have to watch myself, and I have to like be self-critical, and. And I don't know where I'd feel. And I, I, you know, I personally, I only go back and listen to myself on a broadcast if I fuck something up. Hmm. Because I think generally I have an understanding of where I'm going with it and what, what I sound like. Sometimes when I fuck up, I'm like, ooh, is it as bad as I think it is? <laughs> and then you go check it out. And then I go look and then I'll go listen back and like, ooh, shoot, that was like, let's hope nobody hears that. And I bet you're the only person that notices. Or do you get feedback? Uh, I get feedback. 
um, a little bit. You know, I get feedback, you know, especially if I'm doing, uh, let's say, a college football game that's on TV and it's a bigger game. My my Twitter mentions will definitely light up with you know, people just, you know, saying saying stuff. You know, and some sometimes it's accurate. Like, I'll actually look at some of the, the critical stuff. And I, I intentionally keep my phone down during the game because I don't want to see anything pop up. Right. But at the end of the game, uh, I will look back and be like, yeah, I was probably right. I probably, like, was trying to be too punchy or, or whatever. So I will look at it. But as far as going back to listen, I'm kind of I'm kind of like the people like you. I, I, don't, I don't like it. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's uncomfortable. But it's like human, right? Like sometimes you just you – just, I mean, life's not perfect, right? I mean, you can't be perfect all the time. Like you make mistakes and do something silly and you just hope that you're the, your biz, biggest critic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would think that from my standpoint, it's just me. Like there's there's a partner or whatever, but I'm only in control of myself. So if I screw up, it's not really going to mess him up, and it's not really going to make him look bad. Right. But in acting, when you guys are in a group, let's say four of you guys kill it, and you laid a dud of a line, <laughs> and they're like, "Come on, dude! Like, we we'd had this awesome take, and you're the one that's fucking this up." Like, I feel like that's got to be a lot of pressure, especially when pressure. you know every second that that camera's on, that's money. Yeah. Every time that light goes on, like, oh, that's money. Every every minute that those that those people work in, the lighting, all the other stuff, every minute is money. And you fucking a lineup is money going out the door. And it's it's real. I mean, it's totally real. I, there's a scene in Super Troopers I want, if I ever see it, and I'm like, oh, man. I, I, know I, I know if I could do it again – I could get a joke out of it, mm-hmm. but I, I see it and I deliver it and it's flat. And I'm like, fuck, you know. I, but you get one chance, you get one or two chances. There's just no time and money, and like you do it and it's out there, and maybe you miss a tackle sometimes. You're know, like, God, if I could just do it again, I know I could fucking wrap up his ankle. You know, I'm like, I, I, I know there's a line I missed, and it's stuck. It's stu- you're there, there forever. It sucks. How much of those movies, and not just Super Troopers, but all your other movies, how much of it is <clears throat> is everything scripted, or were you guys? in that moment feel like you can play off of each other and kind of and kind of just riff and and be a little bit more impromptu. Uh, early stuff was always 100% scripted. Super Troopers is 100% scripted. Uh, Beer Fest, we finally got to the point where you had a little bit more money and you'd get it, you'd, you'd shoot what's written and then they'd say, okay, let's try to burn one. And there's a couple of lines that made the movie. There's a line that Jay said, oh, I want to freeze it and thaw it in the springtime and skate on it. Mm-hmm. I taste this beer and he's like, oh, this beer's delicious. I want to freeze it in the wintertime thaw it in the skate on it or something like that and and i had never heard that line before i'm standing next to him and he says this and i snorted into my beer and it shoots in my face and my whole wardrobe is like wet and fortunately they were able to cut just before i snorted but i almost ruined the take and that line made it into the movie then they had to take off my shirt and blow dry it and like (laughs) had to take like a half hour break so I, i killed half an hour that day which is valuable time yeah because jay made me laugh on an improv line but that does happen. But we most of it's – I'd say 99% of our movies are scripted. How much beer was actually drank on the set of Beer Fest? So our party line is 100%. Hmm. But the truth <laughs> – I mean, the truth is legally you're not lo- really allowed to have beer on set. Well, right? legally, you know, for like, insurance purposes, right? Like you're not allowed to have beer and drink all day long. But 
we had a good relationship with the prop master, right? And so we had sponsors from certain beers, so they would send beer. And so, the you know, legally, they, they're putting non-alcoholic beer in the glasses, but you'd have like a little signal you give to them at a certain time when you felt, okay, if I start drinking now, I can make it to the end of the day. Right. Right. It's not right. like you're going to start drinking at 5 a.m. when you start shooting because you have 17 hours to shoot. But, you know, when you got three hours left, like, all right, I got a pretty light load going from here on out. Like, and you give the signal and he sw- switches out the real beer for you. So, uh, you know, most of the beer drinking happens after the cameras go up. Yeah. I mean, it's been fun. I don't know, this 25 or some 30 year anniversary of Caddyshack. And is it Caddyshack? Caddyshack. They've been doing some interviews recently about like old Caddyshack stories. And you're like, oh my God. Right? Like, the partying that they would do <laughs> and that's that was unbelievable the amount of drugs like during lunch and drinking and yeah one time they're they're shooting in Ted Knight right who's like a really kind of like serious actor yeah He'd show up on time he wanted to get out of there so he can go spend time with his family and and they show up and like where's where's Bill and this is uh Danny Noonan that was Michael O'Keefe that was telling the story and they're like Where's Bill? Like, I don't know. <laughs> they had to track him down, right? I mean, they would party so hard that they had, like, shooting's supposed to start. They're trying to track down Bill Murray. Then he comes and he knocks out of the park. It's one of the greatest characters and scenes in the movie. But, you know, it's just like part of the fun of on the movie sets is what happens after the cameras stop rolling. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. that's kind of when the partying and the fun happens. Yeah. I can't imagine being in that high-pressure acting environment, going out the night before, getting totally tore up, and then be like, yeah, fuck it. I'll just show up on set and just knock my lines out. Like from from an athlete's perspective, a former yeah. athlete's perspective, I can't imagine going out on a Saturday night and be like, "Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just gonna show up. I'll show up to the stadium. I'll, I'll knock it out." And I know, you know, there are I- iconic players like Lawrence Taylor is one of the ones. You know, now now he's doing a bunch of blow before the game, so he's he might be hung over, but he's gonna you know maybe do a line or two, and then he's he's fine. But I think in the modern Modern NFL now, like we're way more scrutinized, and um, you know they got our thumb, they got their thumbprint on us as far as getting away with that stuff. I, I just I find the whole thing fascinating that people can operate at that level, party their asses off, like rock stars are the, s- the same thing. They'll go from city to city, tear it up one night after the deal, yeah. maybe jump on a plane or your bus. You go, you sleep during the day, you do a sound check at sometime in the afternoon, and you rock out again at night. And rinse and repeat. Yeah. Yeah, we did it for a while. We did a, a national tour, like a live show for about a year and a half. It was like that. You'd, you'd, you'd go every night to a club and do uh, usually two back-to-back shows. So you're performing from like 8 to 9.30 and then like 10 to 11.30. And then you go out and then you got to wake up the next morning, fly somewhere else and do it again. It's hard. It's hard, it man. It ages you. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun, but yeah. It's a badge of honor, though. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we did that. We did that. Yeah, it was fun. Oh, the, the beauty of youth. Um, we're kind of nearing the end of our time here, but I do want to ask you a few questions that I had written down that I think are just fun. Let's do that. All right, let's we? do it, yes. I'm going to put you on the spot, okay? Can I know I that you, you are. Can I ask you a question then before we leave, too? Yeah. Okay. Okay. You're writer, Later. producer, all this stuff. Yeah. I've already said that. I'm going to ask you to play a casting director. Oh, okay. Okay. Now, maybe just put your casting director hat on. Done. Um, we are in some trying but yet hilarious times as, as far as a nation goes. Who would you, in Hollywood, choose to play Donald Trump in a movie? <laughs> oh, boy. Can I say anybody alive or dead? Yeah. Okay, Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> yeah, he would nail it. He would nail it. All right. A bit I, exaggerated, but, uh, you know. But yeah. I think that you, you hit it on the head as far as, like. Spirit. Of it, spirit. Yeah, there's a, spirit, there's a character there that, yeah. that can be played in an exuberant way. Um, Joe Biden. Uh, Sudeikis. I, I know it's from SNL, but I think Sudeikis has a pretty good Biden. Mm-hmm. The teeth. <laughs> I liked it. I could see him doing it in a movie. Yeah, see, I, I'd i have a hard time with this because I have a hard time probably picturing putting a younger actor in that role and then just making his hair gray and making him look old. Like so Ted I'm all, Knight? Yeah, I'm, I'm always just thinking of, like, older people. Yeah. But I know you could Hollywood it up and have a Sudeikis guy like Sudeikis. Yeah, too young, okay, well, let's roll with that one. Um, He's too young. This is sort of a serious question. Uh, in the in the sports world and in my experience, there's always been players that the public maybe doesn't respect as much as the players do. And we're like, that dude is a baller and right. nobody talks right. about him. Right. You know, one of those guys to me was London Fletcher, linebacker with the Washington Redskins. I think he was an undersized linebacker, but he made plays and like. We internally respected the hell out of his game. Like, I watched his film a lot. Like, man, if I need to run this coverage or whatever, that's the way to do it. Like, he was sort of the, one of the models for me. When it comes to actors, who's sort of the, in, the actor's actor that maybe doesn't get a lot of credibility from the outside world, but internally everybody's like, that guy or girl is legit. So I think finally he got some recognition this year. Was the Emmys, I think. But I, you know, Brian Cox, who played Captain O'Hagan Super Troopers, mm-hmm. I think was one of those guys who really was well respected as an actor in theater. I mean, the guy was always flying around doing like all over the world doing King Lear in Bombay or like West End in London. And then he would come and he'd do like a silly comedy, but then he'd be off to do some like very heavyweight Shakespearean play at uh, the Old Vic or something like that, you know. But I felt like he never really got that respect of the De Niro's or the Nicholson's or kind of this mm-hmm. world uh, until finally Succession where he got an Emmy. Or was it more? I can't remember if it was an Emmy or Golden Globe. Maybe it was Golden Globe. Maybe Golden Globe. Golden Globe yeah, right. that sounds more accurate. And now, man, that it, guy's a act, great actor. Isn't he the voice now of the McDonald's commercial? Brian Cox? Yeah. Is he? He might be. He. I, I, I feel like it's him. And he's just, he's just like almost, almost kind of like the character that you kind of always see. But it's 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 very like – bold but yet sort of nonchalant and at least the way he does his read and I don't know it, maybe it's not him but whoever whoever it is sounds just like him and I and I love the actual read that he does um, as a comedian I, I don't I don't know if Will Forte is considered in this category or not but being on set and being in a couple movies with Will Forte mm-hmm. I find his comedy be, comedy to be effortless the thing about Brian too is like when, when Brian would come on set you never felt like he was acting you never knew, never thought that he would like memorize lines he would just come on and he just had the lines down and he never like forgot them or mangled them or anything he just came on and delivered a line and it was just like so nonchalant yeah. it felt like it just came so easily to him like did that take you two seconds to memorize that you know he's picking up I got it you know what I mean like yeah. and would deliver it unbelievably well I felt like Will Forte was a, like that comedically like we talked about a couple of times seeing a scene where I didn't slam and Sam, and I, I, we didn't talk about it. But there's a scene in Sam and Sam where I felt like, God, I didn't, I didn't nail the joke, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, I had to like get a certain intonation or a reaction or some way to like nail the joke. Where everything that came out of Will's mouth was just funny. I don't know if it's just the way it kind of looks or sound. I feel like Chevy Chase was like that too. It's just like everything they do or say. Chevy Chase walked onto a talk show back in this heyday, and you're laughing. 
right? Right. right. He just walks out from the curtain and you're like, ah, you know, you're like, and I feel like Will Forte is when he is a, in a comedy and doing a scene, he's like that. Just everything that comes out of his mouth is funny. That's my opinion, at least. Well, you bring up Slammin' Salmon. Uh, Michael Clark Duncan was in that. And I wanted to ask you about his his personality as a person. He seems like, to me on the outside looking at it, like just a giant teddy bear. Yeah. Is that kind of how he is? Kind of. <laughs> you say that with kind of. He would play these weird games. Not with us, per se, but he uh, – so he was always a great actor. And we weren't sure – you know, he's very dramatic, obviously, in like Green Mile. So we were mm-hmm. a little bit nervous. Originally, we had written that – that part with like a Mike Tyson, like literally having Mike Tyson play that part, but we weren't quite sure. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have somebody there 17 hours a day, totally professional. We didn't know if he'd show up or reliable. I mean, he was in Hangover, but you didn't know if he could carry a lead in the movie. So Michael Clark Duncan, we asked Adam McKay, uh, directed uh, Talladega Nights, you know, and he's like, oh man, he's got great comedic chops. Yeah, he's really great. There's a scene when he stabs himself, uh, Will Ferrell stabs himself in the wheelchair in the yeah. leg. And then he's like, don't you put that on me, Ricky Bobby. Don't you put that on me. There, he said that there, was no, that there was no lines for that scene. That was like an unscripted scene. And then Michael could just roll with it and go. So, But in real life, he used to play this game, can you defend yourself? Like there was times when he would mess with people. And, uh, and yes, he was a big teddy giant, teddy giant, but he liked to play a game like, if I jumped over that desk right now, could you defend yourself? He's like, no, I couldn't, Michael. As a matter of fact, I could not defend myself. Well, no, you're a gigantic man. (laughs) (laughs) And he liked to play these kind of intimidation games in a playful way. But uh, he had had a little bit more complexity than just sort of like a uh, gentle teddy bear kind of guy. Yeah. He's a great guy. Yeah. Terrific guy. Uh, let's let's turn this thing all the way back to Minneapolis. Um, you love this city. Uh, you're a huge promoter of this city and this state, really. I mean, even when you you go up north a lot and you've been up there and, um, you know, a lot of your stuff that I see on your social media, like you just love being in the outdoors. But I think what everybody – this is kind of like those throwaway questions that everybody wants to know. Like when you go out, like what is your favorite restaurant in the Twin Cities? If you, if you were to have a buddy come to town – that never been here and say like, hey, on a Friday or Saturday night, you need to go here. Yeah. Uh, I suppose Bar La Grassa is kind of the default. Mm-hmm. None of the food there is just amazing, fun environment. Um, I probably am at Pia Steak the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you and I have had dinner yep. there. And uh, I think I love the environment, the back bar. It's kind of dark and it's got the big bull on the wall and, you know, steakhouse. And I don't know. So I, I don't know. If I had to make a list um, – I, I think, you know, it's tough now with COVID because things aren't open oh, yeah, right now. Yeah. But, man, if someone's coming to town, I always recommend, like, uh, Bar La Grassa, 112 Eatery, Young Joni's, Pia Steak. Uh, there's so many great ones. I mean, there's so many great restaurants in this town. But yeah. I guess that's just the short list that's popping in my mind right now. But I feel bad because I'm leaving stuff out. It's such a great Yeah. No, and, and, you know, in Young Patrick Joni's, Farmer one of those places where um, my wife has been several times. I still haven't gone yet. You haven't gone that? No. Oh, my God. You God, could order so many things on that menu. It's hard to get in. I mean, so hard. Oh, that's, the, that's the other part. It's so hard to get in. That I I'm like, by the time I think about it, I'm like, I, you know, I'm not going to book a reservation for two months out or whatever. Yeah. You know, but, I mean, good good for her and good Great. for the restaurant. I mean, they're, they're, they are crushing it right now. So, and yeah. I heard the food's amazing. Food's amazing. Um, so my last question for, for you, and you said you have a question for me. Um, I always like to do this because obviously, you know, I want to thank you for being on here. But I also want to give you the opportunity to sort of promote yourself a little bit. Like, you know, what's coming up next for you? Um, what are you working on? You know, what do you want to get out? You know, maybe that's not not professionally, but just, you know, I guess to sort of pump yourself up a little bit. How can we help you? 
Um, well, thank you for that. Uh, you know, I guess follow me if, uh, on social media. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and I try to stay pretty active, just showing stuff that's going on in Minneapolis and uh, going out. Um, you know, Super Troopers 2 was successful, so we are currently writing Super Troopers 3. Nice. So I guess if you were to, um, yeah, I mean, check out. A lot of people get, and it's fair. I think it's a total fair assessment. People get um, squeamish about sequels. Yeah. But uh, I would say maybe instead of just feeling like, oh, I'm not going to see a sequel because it's a sequel, maybe give it a chance. You may like it, you may not. I know that there are a lot of people that do like it enough so that we have su- enough success to go make Super Troopers 3. So maybe go check out Super Troopers 2 if you haven't. Mm-hmm. Give it a shot um, instead of just saying, I'm not going to see a sequel. Oh, they're often sequels suck, right? Number two was great. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Thank it was you. awesome. Thank you. I, Thank I mean, you. I'm okay. going gonna, gonna to tell people to go watch Super Troopers 2 because it's <laughs> fucking hilarious. It's as good as the first one, and it's great. Um, and I'm super excited that you guys are writing three. Any idea when that will be? So that'll be a while. It takes out. a lo- it takes a long time to write. Yeah. And with COVID, we haven't been able to get in the same room. So we've been Zoom meeting. And there's another script that we have that's untitled currently that um, is farther along. And so we're developing two movies with Searchlight Pictures right now. And I don't know which one's going to sh- get shot first, but this other one is farther along. Um, I was working on it last night. Uh, I have a meeting with the guys tonight at 930. And I will say I laughed out loud a lot. A lot. Oh, that's good. Like uh, I was <laughs> tickled. I was tickled. I loved it. And so I'm really excited about this untitled Broken Lizard movie that we are currently uh, finishing. It's like it's it's very far along in the development process. And um, I don't know if Searchlight's going to have more notes or not. They may have one more round of notes, and they may not. I don't know. We are getting close to being finished with that one. Can you give us an idea of what it's about? Um, I feel like maybe it's sort of been talked about out there, but I don't want to. I always hate being the guy that talks about yeah. it when it's not announced. Yeah. All right. We'll just have to wait for that and Super Troopers 3. So you got a lot of stuff in the hopper. There's a lot of stuff in the hopper. Yeah, that's good. I, you got you to stay busy. I know you mentioned your social media um, what is your actual handle so people can know? Uh, that's a good question. I think <laughs> the, I think the easiest way is just Google Eric Stolhansky Facebook. Yep. Because a lot of people don't know how to spell my last name, mm-hmm. but it'll always just kind of autocorrect it to get you there. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think on Instagram it's um, Stolhansky. And so everybody knows out there, it's Eric with a K. Eric with, with a K. C. Uh, Instagram is like S T O L H A N S K E. Most mm-hmm. people think it's an I on the end, but it's a Swedish last name, and it's S-K-E. Which means steel glove. I did find that out. Something like that, yeah. yeah. yeah I have different last... people, like, it's social media is interesting. You have, like, people chiming yeah. in from, like, Norway and Sweden or whatever, like, you know, like, saying different definitions of it cause it's different countries. But it's just a weird world that somebody that far away, like, <laughs> is chiming in because they actually know how to speak the language. I forget it's steel gauntlet. I've heard steel glove. I've heard steel chair. It's steel something. Well, why can't it be steel leg? <laughs> I like to think of it as steel hand, like uh, on the glove of a um, armor, like you know, like a knight mm-hmm. is a steel glove. Like Stolahanska is steel hand. Stolahanska. 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 And I think it's tough. Yeah, it's super I, tough. I name it's my really badass. Steel yeah. hand. Steel hand ink is my, uh, my my production company. Stolahanska. Stolahanska. It's how you live your life. Yeah. <laughs> steel fist. It's my motto. It's, it's my ethos. It's my life. <laughs> <laughs> so Ben, can I ask you a question for you? Yeah, I know we've been on this way too long. Most people want like a twenty minute podcast. We've been like three hours. But hey, uh, so when I was in high school, we were at this camp, right? We're playing a game of like we decided to play tackle football, and one of the some of the faculty played. And we had a dean who was like a pretty 
stout, muscly guy. And he, you know, we decided to play tackle football one day instead of flag. And so I, I was more of a baseball player, so I never got into the full tackle thing. But I remember the dean of the students got it, and I thought, oh, I'm going to tackle this guy, right? It's going to be fun to tackle the dean of the students. And he gets a ball, and he's running around the, on the end. And I come flying from, like, the linebacker position, and I just lay out, and I you know, just drill him as hard as I could, thinking it would be fun to take him down. And I just remember, like, holy shit, that fucking hurt my body. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like every bone in my body was like, oh, <laughs> oh. And after that, I'm like, how do these guys do it? Like, that was once. You guys yeah. have to do it every play. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes if they keep getting first downs, you're out there forever. No, it's the worst. Like, you're on the field all the time. And you got to do it the next week. I know. But, like, how does your body handle that, man? Like, did you get used to it or is there a technique or – well, there's there's certainly a technique. I mean, it's it's practiced a lot as far as like how to hit properly, um, and and it's it's sort of like I mean, you're you're a baseball player, you know, like when you go to swing a bat, you're not just swinging your arms, right? Oh, it's whole body. It's it's, really it's bad, the yeah. whole body, and and the guys like like look, Ken Griffey Jr. You're like when he's got the sweetest swing, well. It's the full body rotation where he's using his legs, he's using everything, and it's just like in perfect motion and symmetry. And so when he connects with the ball, it's just like pure, like yeah, all the time. So I think, you know, we, you, and now, now football is a little more chaotic like that. It's not quite as a, a stagnant movement, but um, I think that's what all the training comes in. Like you got to use your feet, you got to use your hips. You know, we talked about like exploding through your hips and using all that, all that potential energy that you're building up. And then, like, transferring it at the moment of impact and sort of this, like, kinetic force that sort of goes through the ball carrier. Um, the plays that hurt the worst are, you know, when you're getting all that force upon you. You go to make the hit, and let's just say the running back is Derek just Henry. running. Derrick Henry. You know, <laughs> I, I, you know, my example was Jerome Bettis. Like, oh. there, there was an amount of force that my body could <laughs> generate to hit him when he's running that I'm going to win. Like I was never going to be on the winning side of that. So every fucking time that I hit him, it hurt, you know? And, and I do think that there's, your body does sort of get used to it. Really? You know, there's a conditioning I think that, that takes place. Like, you know, you you brace for impact enough. You brace for, you, your body sort of like gets that muscle memory of like what body parts to kind of tighten up and, and protect but that is kind of why we, for the most part, are a bunch of meatheads because you need to be in there working out. You've got to build up a strong neck. You've got to build up strong shoulders. You've got to, you know, it's it's almost like <laughs> this is our body of armor that's going to protect us. And yeah. so you're in there just pumping iron all the time and trying to get strong. But, yeah, dude, I, I look back at these guys playing right now, and I don't know how they do it. I, I actually can't believe that I did it, to be honest with you, because it's like, it seems like a whole different life, and I, I feel the way my body feels right now, although it feels pretty good. I can't imagine hitting somebody right now. I'd, I would be like you taking on that teacher. Like, yeah. just every joint in my body would scream. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And then I'd be sore the next day. Yeah, I thought it was going to be fun. Like, I'm going to attack this guy, only to be like, wow, that hurt. Wow, that hurt. I still, yeah. like, 20 years later, still remember how much that hurt. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing you don't have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be fun. I mean, it was fun. I, I still I love playing football. But... Yeah. Uh, well, thanks a lot, man. This hey, is this thanks, is awesome, yeah. super Good insightful, time. and um, you know, let's uh, let's stay in touch, man. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Have dinner again. Go to the steakhouse. Go eat some meat. Go eat a ribeye. Love it. That was really good. All right, see you, bud. See you, bud. Thanks.
I want to thank my main man, Eric Stolhansky, for joining us. I hope you guys really enjoyed it. Super funny, really entertaining. Uh, I guess he goes by Stolhansky, the Steel Fist. It's kind of a badass thing to be known as. Your last name is Steel Fist. But uh, Eric Stolhansky, very entertaining. Follow him on social media. Uh, We're all looking forward to Super Troopers 3 and the yet-to-be-named very funny comedy that sounds like it's coming out much sooner than Super Troopers 3. So be on the lookout for anything and everything that the Broken Lizard crew is doing. Uh, I want to thank again my main man, Dave Yeager, for helping me out with the podcast and making this sound great. And again, please subscribe. If you guys like this podcast, hit that subscribe button. We'd love that. Also hit that like button. And if you're so inclined to give us some feedback, again, I just asked that just please keep it gentle. I'm a little thin-skinned sometimes, and sometimes I don't want to hear the negativity, but I know the negativity is important. So if you want to leave some feedback, I would love that too. So thanks a lot, guys. Peace. Peace.